0: Hey there, and welcome back to the Career HQ Podcast. As you may have noticed, I took a little bit of a break between having COVID and then Christmas and New Year's and then settling back in to work. I just needed to take a little bit of time to catch up on some other things, but we are back and we have kind of an interesting couple of episodes coming up here. So I decided that I was going to ask the next three people who signed up for Superpath Pro to also be podcast guests. So while normally I have, you know, some existing relationship with the folks that we have on, this conversation today with Nelson Jordan, who's a freelance marketer and copywriter is totally cold. We have not met before. As you'll discover, we end up feeling like long lost friends. He has just a wealth of knowledge on not just the hard skills that make for a great marketer, but the soft skills. And we spend quite a bit of time talking about what that looks like. So I think you'll really enjoy this episode. Nelson also has a podcast of his own, which I will link to. It's called the Work From Home Podcast, which I would recommend checking out. So I hope you enjoy it. I will just give you a couple quick things related to SuperPath. We have a lot going on right now, including a partnership with the good people over at Todoist. They are showing us how to use Todoist for some common content marketing workflows. They've actually given us tutorials, which you can find on the blog and you can find in the Slack channel about how to manage a content calendar, a content pipeline, how to create blog post templates that you can reuse over and over again. Really interesting. And they're also offering SuperPath podcast listeners, blog readers, newsletter subscribers, six months free of Todoist Premium. So if you're interested in checking that out, you can go to todoist.com redeem and use the code superpath. Okay. I will get out of the way and make room for my new friend, Nelson Jordan. Enjoy. All right. I'm here today with Nelson Jordan and I'll just give some, some quick context here. I had decided that the next three people that signed up for super path pro would be the next three podcast guests if they were willing to do that. And Nelson, you were one of those folks that signed up. So hopefully you're okay with doing this and being on the podcast. Yeah.
1: Well, it's a bit late now if I'm not (laughs) great to be here. I've been, um, following kind of super path, just obviously only for, for a little while. But before that, I knew of you from your work with animals. So yeah, it's good to finally speak.
0: Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's it's, it's good context because you know, oftentimes the folks that are on the podcast, I have prior relationships with, we've worked together, we were coworkers, or they were customers of animals or things like that. And so this is cold. Interestingly, when I said that the next three people that signed up all came from very different backgrounds and do very different types of work, which is kind of, kind of perfect you work for yourself. And so maybe we can start there. What do you do?
1: Sure. So I'm a freelance content strategist, content creator for the SaaS and e-commerce industries. So I've actually only really kind of called myself that sort of title since mid 2020. So that's really, really interesting. Like I've been kind of all around, you could say, in terms of digital marketing, you know, I kind of got my master's in marketing kind of 10 years ago and, and since then I've been working in uh, paid social media to start with for b2b and b2c and then I moved to ppc and seo and finally oh, CRO. so basically like as my friends like to joke I've just been gathering acronyms yeah, uh, <laughs> right over this career but um the one thing like all of my work had in common is it was always based around content, right? And it was only until kind of mid last year that I was like, it took me that long. I was that slow on the uptake to be like, oh, hang on the content side. The strategy side is what I really enjoy. Maybe I should do that more.
0: That's really cool. So did you, you decided kind of like middle of 2020, I mean, 2020, obviously a pretty crazy time that that was the right time to make the leap.
1: Yeah, so like I've been kind of a freelancer, I guess, for probably coming up to three years now, I think. So yeah, a little while before that, I was working for an agency, and before that, I was working in house. So I've been kind of around as well. So I know within marketing the pros and cons of each of those as well, which is quite nice. Right. But um, I was working for an agency in Birmingham in the UK. And my wife and I just decided, she was my my girlfriend at the time, decided that we wanted a change in lifestyle. So we eventually settled on Valencia in Spain, um, which turned out to be an amazing choice. We got incredibly lucky, just the most beautiful place I've I've ever lived by an absolute country mile. And so I, I was kind of going backwards and forwards each month, kind of spending a week out of each month back in Birmingham, just trying to cluster all my meetings together, which is right. quite an intense, intense period. But I, I did that for a year until I kind of decided that, look, I'm actually here to enjoy like the Spanish lifestyle. I want to do it properly. And the thing that I was kind of most known for then, I suppose, is, is kind of the paid traffic acquisition. So like Facebook, Instagram, Google ads, and, and mainly for e-commerce companies. So I opened a small kind of e-commerce agency. I was a kind of a freelancer to start with. These days I have a few people working for me, managing the accounts. I actually, I'm lucky that I don't do much in the way of day-to-day stuff at all. Um, I just kind of draw a salary from it, but spend probably like 30 minutes to an hour on each client per month. You wow, know? that's the uh, dream. Yeah, but I was I was doing that, that full-time, as, as you say, until kind of the quarantine hit. I lost like the biggest client maybe four weeks in. To coronavirus because their business was entirely physical now uh, they're in the event space so that was really tough yeah i was i right. was very fortunate and it, it was nothing more than like blind luck that i managed to replace like two-thirds of the income within three days wow it, it wasn't because i had like any ultra secret ultra profitable lead gen system up and running it, it was honestly just just kind of lucky timings but it did work out but it, it kind of caused me to rethink a lot of things like it made me realize that actually I wasn't enjoying the paid traffic side at all. I wasn't feeling creative anymore. I wasn't looking forward to work. So I had this kind of period of a couple of months where I was like, what do I actually enjoy doing? What would make me feel creative? And I started off kind of copywriting and then kind of found that actually the content strategy side was, was more enjoyable to me and made just far better use of all the other all the other kind of digital marketing skills that I'd accumulated over over the kind of the last decade or so.
0: Right, right. And so the client you work with now is still in the e-commerce space or have you
1: some e-com, but like it's kind of split, I'd suppose, between e com and SaaS. They're kind of the two industries that I know the most about from a personal level. I've built a brand like on Amazon in my past. I've bought and sold an e-commerce store on Shopify. I've done all of these things before through my agency and through freelance. So they're the ones that I have like, I suppose, demonstrable results that I can point to and kind of say, I did this, I did this. Like, do you want that as well?
0: Yeah, cool. Right. right. That's so interesting. You know, it strikes me that I've never run a paid ad in my entire life and I've always worked in B2B. And it seems that there is a B2B, especially B2B SaaS folks are drawn towards Building traffic through organic search, very content-heavy SEO, and then on the e-commerce side, they're they're much more drawn to mobile, to paid. It's not that clean that it's just one or the other. But is that I mean, is that a trend that you see also?
1: Yeah, there's two very different ways of approaching it, and it depends kind of for the e-commerce side. It depends a lot on average order value, right? So, right. the kind of thing that I've come across, which explains why B two B companies, particularly like B two B SaaS companies tend to trend towards, in terms of long-term growth anyway, they tend to trend towards organic search and and content forming like the bedrock of their strategy, purely because of unit, unit economics, right? So the things that they're selling cost a lot, basically. And when it's scalable like that, as well, I think content is such a good strategy for it. It's actually quite different, which is one of the things that I have to get my head around on a, on kind of a daily basis. It's completely different with e-commerce because the average order values and the customer lifetime values tend to be a lot smaller, not always, but just just on average, that's the case. That's why like paid ads have been kind of the go-to method right? Because you can kind of create an ad in in very, very short amount of time and pay to have that seen by people. Um, They're incredibly different in terms of the marketing funnel, in terms of like the intent behind that, uh, just massively different. But with those sorts of things, like even within e-commerce, I'm seeing content strategy trending upwards basically. And I think the reason is because like the cost per acquisition in terms of, Paid has just gone through the roof over the last yeah. couple of years. Like every year, pretty much without fail, you kind of see it on Facebook, Google Ads as well. You yeah. kind of see, like, right, it cost me $2 to get an ad to cut last year. Now it's costing me like $275. Next year, it's probably going to cost $350. Like, I'm just pulling numbers out of thin air for this, but I've seen that trend. And with things happening like the iOS changes at the moment that Apple are implementing, I think that's only going to increase. Facebook will have, you know, less data to work with, and I think that's going to carry on. So, anything content related, anything email related, basically anything that's kind of earned or owned media, I think is going to continue to become more popular. So, right. hopefully, I'm in a good space.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's so interesting. I, you know, one of the, the trends we saw at Animals was that we worked primarily with B two B SaaS companies and. Many companies would hire us. They would hit this very familiar inflection point where they had kicked things off with word of mouth, kind of growth hackery stuff. They had been running paid ads. And eventually, like the business is getting up and running, but it's it's getting too expensive for them to continue with the relying entirely on paid. They had no traffic otherwise if they're not continuing to pay. So that would be like the time when they would they, they would say, okay, now we're ready to think about content marketing. What does that look like? And we could come up with a formula that we felt like was a very reasonable way to kind of wean off of some of that paid and start investing in content. We had one e-commerce company come to us with basically the same problem, but we just could never figure out the unit economics of it. You know, like That's their it. average skew was like $20. And so to them, it's like, we need X new purchases per blog post. It's just, and it had to be that black and white. And like in the B2B SaaS world, it, it just doesn't work like that. There's, sure. They have very long runways and whatever. Do you see that? Are there e-commerce companies who are building really strong content presences? Maybe it doesn't look like B2B SaaS. Maybe it's more social, YouTube, whatever else, but is that is that a trend? Yeah, I, th- I think it's different types of content.
1: I think that's the important thing. As shows talking to to Tyler Hake over at Yes Optimist earlier today and like his trifecta kind of content strategy I think nails this so the types of content that do well are, are really different from what I've seen anyway so like the trifecta marketing strategy is based around these as I said three different types of content right there's the content that you write to rank the content that you write to attract backlinks and the content you write or i suppose i should say create rather than write as a lot of it isn't isn't necessarily written
0: mm.
1: uh, the content that you create to quote unquote go viral the kind of shareable content mm. and what i tend tend to find is like the content that you write to rank is less of a factor for e-commerce companies actually what you're really wanting to do is attract kind of shareable content so the focus for me when I'm writing that that sort of e-commerce content is how do I create something that's actually going to be able to be used within their paid funnel, not just organic content. I think there's so much more value there and they can see like if you create a blog post that leads directly into their, their funnel, whether it's kind of like probably Tofu or MoFu in, in terms of like that funnel, they can see that if they can actually feed that into their cold audiences as a way of like warming them up, then them way, way happier to do that because it almost fulfills like a different role. So with the e stuff, typically I try and, I, I find that the easy wins are making that content part of their paid funnel. It just seems to make the maths work a little bit better.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. For whatever this is worth, I have found myself buying way more stuff recently that I have originally found on Instagram. Sure, And I think part of that is like, it's just super prevalent. Everybody's advertising on Instagram, but two, like people are starting to figure out how to make it attractive and interesting to folks. I've recently bought nutrition supplements, steak seasonings, like an eye mask for all stuff that I just like came across on Instagram that like, it seemed it's like pervasive now. It's like the type of thing that felt cutting edge not so long ago. And now it's like, that's just part of our regular buying habits. I'm curious about, you know, when I think of, when I think of the paid world, I think uh, very analytical, very numbers driven, but as you alluded to, there's a very important creative element to it. You know, could you speak to that? Is I mean, are you thinking about the copy and landing pages? Is it the broader strategy or like what else is in that kind of creative bucket?
1: Sure. So this, this is actually like a big problem area when it comes to business structure and agency structure more than anything else, because... When you hire like a Facebook and Instagram agency, let's take that one as an example because it's quite, quite close to home. Like a lot of the times they won't touch anything that isn't the the paid ads, right? You've hired Mm -hmm. them to do paid ads. What goes on on the landing page, what goes on in their emails and, and the flows and stuff like that. They don't necessarily always view that as their problem or their remit and oh, and that's fair enough you know if that's what they've been hired to do and there is kind of firm boundaries and expectations set there just has to be the realization there that like the paid part of it is just a small part of the entire funnel right so like if you get into this like leaky bucket situation right that you can, can create ads that do really really well in terms of like getting impressions and shares and comments and all the metrics look like they're they're gonna line up, like your cost per click is super, super low. You're like, great, what's gonna happen here? And then even if they do convert on the landing page, they do actually add to uh, do purchase, because the company um, doesn't have their back-end system set up in terms of like actually how do we extract the largest like lifetime value from this customer? How do we like upsell, cross-sell? How do we take them from like a single purchaser to a multi-purchaser, the actual unit economics don't work because it's really, really hard to scale aggressively and also make a profit on the first sale using paid. Right. If you don't have everything in in line in terms of, okay, well, we're breaking even on this, but I've done the math in terms of customer lifetime value. We're still miles ahead.
0: Right. Right. That's interesting. I mean, in the content marketing agency world, there's like this very, it's a real challenge of like, how do you as an agency measure the work that you're doing, measure the the effectiveness of it, and then report that back to the client. Content is, I've found just, it's just inherently difficult to measure. Are there things that you've learned from the paid world and also the copywriting world too? I'm curious about that, that you kind of use to keep track of or to measure the work that you're doing nowadays? Sure. So it- it definitely depends what what industry
1: you're in, but I think like there's more and more calls for content marketers to be responsible for for the number of leads. There's a different way of viewing them though. Whether you're responsible for kind of the marketing qualified leads and um, um, versus kind of sales qualified, like how are you going to make those differentiators? What actually are you responsible? And a lot of that work, particularly when you're working with an agency or a freelancer, should be done at the outset because. I've worked with people that have found like, okay, we didn't perform on this metric, but then they suddenly pull another metric out of thin air to kind of rationalize why they did something after the fact, I suppose. So kind of getting clear on what metrics you're, you're responsible, what success is actually going to look like. And that's going to change for each different piece of content you create, right? If it's top of the funnel content, then depending on your product, it's not necessarily going to be responsible for like sales leads or free trials. If you're talking about like enterprise software, for sure, things get way, way trickier because the timelines and the number of people involved and you you tend to get into like account-based marketing and that sort of stuff. Yeah. So it, my answer is kind of like how long is a piece of string, but you should make sure that Depending on the pieces of content and your roles and responsibilities, you have metrics that that match up for those. If you are using the same metric for everything that you produce and all your outcomes, there's a fair chance that you're not doing everything that you could be doing.
0: Right. We have, for SuperPath Pro folks, there's a course on reporting. And one of the things we talk about in there is um, as you're reporting on content marketing, don't report on numbers that you are not actively trying to Move the needle on. It's and so sometimes it's that simple because, like, if you are actively trying to grow organic traffic, there's like a small group of numbers that be highly relevant that you should measure. And then there's dozens of other numbers that you could measure, but actually may suffer because your focus is somewhere else. And then what has to happen is that somebody higher up says, Why is such and such number down? And then everyone kind of overreacts to that diverts their attention from the thing we're supposed to be working on. Reporting is so tricky. It really is so tricky. I
1: think understanding, like I used to have this, this client at my old agency that that would make us compile this ridiculous thing. And no matter how much we kind of try tried to, tried to rationalize why every, every month, beginning of the next month, we'd have to create this document. It would take me like a day to do this thing. So that was like a day that they were paying me to work on their account where I actually wasn't doing anything. Now, it's totally fine if you use that data for something, right? So like if you actually gain some insights and then change your behavior, but if you're not doing anything, no matter whether those like numbers go up, go down or stay the same, then there is literally no point doing anything with it. Like right. kind of what a good question, I suppose, to ask when you're deciding like what metrics to measure in the first place is to ask yourself the question, what would I do if this number went up? What would I do differently? What would I do differently if this number went down? What would I do differently if this number stayed the same? If you can't answer those questions, chances are you shouldn't be measuring it.
0: I love that. I love that. It's such, I'm going to write that down. We might add that to the course because it's, it is It is actually- You've
1: got this recorded, so
0: you'll be- Yeah, around. yeah. Well, it's so, it's so interesting because there are just so many numbers that you could track. And one other thing I found in working with a many, many different content teams is that, the content strategy is not always documented. In fact, it is rarely documented. And the ideal state is that the content strategy is maybe, a, or actually, I'll be curious. I'll be curious if you agree with this. My ideal state would be one to two page content strategy documented, signed off on by anybody that needs to sign off on it so you can just execute on it. Because the execution so often is a handful of things done over and over and over again with enough runway to give it the time to succeed versus. You know, if the content strategy is not documented and you're not getting the results in three months, then you have to change a strategy because your boss or boss's boss is frustrated with it, and then you kind of end up in this cycle where you're constantly trying new things and none of them have enough time to actually do the thing they're supposed to do. But I'm curious. I'm curious about the content strategy piece. Is that do you agree with that? Is does content strategy mean something different to you? Yeah,
1: definitely. I mean, the first thing to to make clear is that most strategies are created once and never looked at again. So do you really want to be spending weeks or months kind of getting into this? Like there is more value, I think, into just getting things up and running and refining as you go in -hmm. terms of the actual tactics that, that you do. What I'm not saying there is that you need to skip the analysis stage and the research because that is very, very important. But in terms of how you actually pull the strategy together, a lot of the thinking happens not on the paper. Like yeah. if you, if you write it well, you can have this thought that's taken you weeks or months to develop, or, you know, an entire career to to gain this insight. And you can put that down in two sentences. Like a lot of what I kind of try and get people to focus on and content marketing is like, create content that you think is great. Create the content that you would want to read or watch or whatever, do it consistently and the consistency is, it's not just like an, an added on thing. It's the actual hardest part to create something worth creating consistently. Yeah. And then like, and this is the point I feel like 90% of people fall down on, like, what's your distribution strategy? Like literally no point creating something if you don't have a plan to distribute it. So I'd go as far to say as like, if you don't have a distribution plan, you shouldn't have a content creation calendar or anything like that.
0: Right. This is so, I feel like I've known you my whole life. <laughs> now we've just met half an hour ago. <laughs> One of the things that was a trend we noticed in animals, and I, I was curious if you found this in your work too, was that some companies would come on board and it was obvious they had what we called a content culture. And it, it's so fluffy, but they they believed in content. They, you didn't have to build an incredibly detailed plan up front. They were very on board with the, let's create great stuff that people don't have to read and we're going to refine as we go. And that was a great yeah. customer to work with. But not all customers are like that and so we'd have other customers who want that very detailed plan they want to know exactly what the numbers will be in month one and two and three what's the forecast and then they would measure us against did we hit it or not and that was a pretty difficult customer to work with because it's kind of from the get-go sort of pinning yourself to these numbers that do i feel confident in two years we're gonna nail the growth numbers you're looking for yes but on a month-to-month basis especially early on We're not going to have it figured out quite yet. It just makes for a very rough start to a relationship.
1: Sure. And I think like there are just people, there's only so much education you can do, right? And a lot of it is about like assessing the clients and whether they're the sort of people that you think you can almost train that mindset into. You think that they're open enough that they'll get it. Typically, like if they've been involved in marketing before, then they'll have some understanding of this. If they haven't, then they might, then they might struggle. That's not to say that they couldn't grasp it, but yeah, I've had the same thing. Like the, the amount of times that I've had conversations, you know, mainly when I was working kind of in in SEO, but content strategy was was a large part of that. Were things like more qualitative questions? I felt were were a good way. Like, so the question I used to ask a lot was like, "How would you feel if you couldn't see any progress in X amount of months?
0: Mm. You know,
1: how would you feel if you didn't if we you couldn't see this this progress in six months, nine months, you know, but you could see the output, for example. And to like actually go through this exercise with them, even though it feels a bit childish and a bit patronizing if if you handle it the wrong way. I think it's so useful to get that insight into a client's mindset because everything gets way more stressful when they've basically put their name on the line within the company to, to hire you. Yeah. And you've done all you can, but at the end of the day, you're not working with something like as easy to map out as like Facebook, for example, you know that, okay, even with the CPAs increasing, you're going to be able to deliver this, right? Yeah. You, you get so much closer to those to those metrics, but in terms of like the actual processes, that they're things that you should be able to map out in terms of output. So in terms of like number of articles and stuff like that, those become like more tangible. Um, Some people will prefer that from the client side because they can go like, well, I told my boss that we'd create X amount of pieces of content and we have, so he's happy. It's just like that stakeholder management piece that's somewhat intangible and probably just comes about with experience, being able to see like the warning signs, right? There's no real ways of skipping that other than just working with some absolute horror clients.
0: (laughs) Right. You know, one thing that I am consistently surprised about, I should just stop being surprised about it, but is the the level to which quote-unquote soft skills play a role in how successful an individual's career is and how successful even a content marketing program might be. You know, like the ability to manage those stakeholders to sort of communicate up and also to communicate down to make sure that the, if you're managing a team that they understand what they're doing and have the tools they need to do a good job. You know, can you build... A narrative that people can get excited about. Can you advocate for the things you need to get the work done? It's like none of those things are. At least I have never come across any kind of formal training on those things. The stuff that you learn by experience for sure, and then I guess also by at least at least in my experience, was just watching other people who I respected and seemed like they were sort of thriving in their work, observing the things that they do, and it end up sort of watching people with, uh, you know, some technical skills, but really like they understand the, the people part of it really well. It's
1: ridiculously important. So you can be incredibly successful in life and, and, you know, we're not putting a particular kind of definition to success, whatever that looks like to you, but like the soft skills will get you there. So, like there are better, way, way better individual like marketers in individual disciplines than like for sure, you know. So when I was working with him with like PPC, for example, I knew there were way more analytical people out there who were able to use like JavaScript to create like formulas for, for analysis and for like inputting uh, code that, that changed automatically in their ads mm-hmm. and stuff like that. I knew all that stuff existed and I, I couldn't do it. And I still think that I had like more success than a lot of people there because I got the clients to pay for, (laughs) pay for the service on a, on a long-term basis, because I was able to kind of explain what was happening and what we were doing and understand when they had concerns and how to rectify those concerns. And and like when, when a client needed handholding versus when the, they na- actually needed to be put back in line and stuff like that. If you don't keep a client, you don't have a chance to do good work with them, right?
0: Yeah. Like,
1: it doesn't matter how good you are. Like if you don't have that client, game's over, right?
0: Yeah. I had an interesting experience like a year or two out of college. I had an internship and my boss was actually a great guy. Someone I still keep in touch with now, like 12 years later. And one day at lunch, we were batting around business ideas. And we were sort of ragging on some businesses that we felt were, you know, we could see that they were doing well, but we were sort of frustrated. Like these people are, you know, we're better, we're better than, than they are at A, B or C. And he said something to me that has always stuck. He said, uh, he said, you know, if we're so smart, why are they so rich? Basically what he was getting at was that like they, one, they've executed, but two, like you could see that they took their, you know, decent technical skills and did all the other stuff so much of it the people stuff the the eq stuff that it's not rocket science but it's still really hard sure and i mean like
1: you see this play out with agencies with services even with with products right so like within products a lot of the time you win customers by doing something like a software product for example you win customers by doing something better by giving the customer convenience right mm-hmm. Like it used to take them X hours to do this and and now it's, it's done in like a click of a button. But then you don't actually tend to lose a lot of clients when you get to that stage and a lot of customers by somebody else coming along that completely revolutionizes and does something like two, three, 10x better. Like they're all the stories that we like we hear and probably are used a lot in like business schools, like all of the disruptive businesses. Most of the time, like you don't lose out to a disruptive business, like 99% of the time that doesn't happen. What you lose out to is like, you haven't answered like a customer service query enough. You've not gone out of your way, like to understand the customer and to make sure that they feel good. And somebody comes along that, might even offer like an inferior product to yours, but they make the customer like feel valued and they, they, they feel good about themselves and like, they actually care. And then you've, you've lost that customer, not because of your lack of technical chops, not because of your, like your product roadmap wasn't strong enough, but because you didn't pay attention to the right things. And you forgot that you were dealing with humans at the end of the day.
0: Right. Right. What, what's your day-to-day like now? How much of it is the soft skills versus the hard skills?
1: So at the moment, I'd say actually a fair amount of it is the hard skills. So it very much depends on like how many projects you work on at any given time, right? But I tend to prefer larger projects because I I find that I spend less of my time then on like things like onboarding and making sure the client kind of understands. And I feel like the project work is very like, okay, the client expects to see something in very, very short period of time. So I prefer kind of retained work. Most of the time, it just suits my lifestyle a lot better. So actually with that sort of stuff, once you kind of get the client on board with like deadlines and stuff like that, and how you contact each other and, and when that should happen, actually, I find that I get to spend more of the time doing the work and kind of improving my own processes and Following guys like yourself over at superpath, kind of trying to improve my skill set, which is good. But I do really, really enjoy the the softer part of it, the client interactions, the talking to people. As you probably probably guessed from this, I've I've not shut up for the past forty minutes. My own, so.
0: <laughs> no, it's great. Really, I I mean it when I say I feel like we've known each other for a long time. It just sounds like s- some similar experiences, some similar perspectives on things. So it's really good to to connect. And I'm glad the record button is on too. Um, <laughs> you too. Where can people find you? I mean, I noticed you have, I mean, I know you have a personal website and social media and all that. I noticed you have a podcast too. Like, can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Sure. So um, for like the, the SAS and Ecom content strategy and copywriting is nelson-jordan.com or for the Americans nelson-jordan.com. Yeah. The working from home podcast is, is something that I started last year, probably three or four months ago. A uh, podcast had been in my brain for a long time, but I just wasn't sure kind of what I actually wanted to address. The one thing that I did know is just that at the time, I just wouldn't have been comfortable creating like yet another marketing podcast. I was doing it in my day-to-day job. I didn't necessarily want to be doing more of it. Sure. So I decided to to kind of talk about under this umbrella of working from home, right? So each week I have the pleasure of interviewing entrepreneurs, online business owners, freelancers like myself, remote workers, non-traditional workers, kind of anybody that doesn't fit into that kind of old paradigm of nine-to-five office work, either because they've chosen it or because they've been forced into it. My very first guest was was my old friend, Rob Jones, who's a PR director. And he'd always thought that he'd wanted to work from home. And actually, it was one of the reasons that he'd, he'd left his old place where we used to work together and then you know he, he got this new role and then COVID hit and then he was you know forced to work from home and actually found that his perfect thing would have been routine I suppose would have been kind of a few days at home and then a few days in the office what he actually wanted was just a bit more flexibility he didn't necessarily want all of this so right. each week I interview very very diverse people doing different things, but the one thing in common is that they all work from home, whether that home is an office like myself or somebody's like uh Lavinia, uh, Lavinia's case and Lydia Lee's case. They both work in in Bali, you know, so it's slightly sunny there, whereas it's snowy and kind of miserable here. But there you go. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. that's the working from home podcast that's available on all the podcast players. So Apple google spotify wherever you want to find it
0: really cool i'll make sure we link to that the work i work from home for, for the last seven years and i have loved six of those seven years yeah <laughs> you know and and for the first time and i'm sure other folks have experienced this too it's like when you can't balance out being at home by yourself all day with yeah. the social life and events and this and that it suddenly becomes very isolating so i will be signing up for a co-working space the second that it feels safe to do it because I feel like I'm just craving some interaction with people in person.
1: This is it. Like right now, people are being, we're in the UK. Um, She probably picked up from the accent, but like right now we're in tier four. So basically if you're outside and you don't have a good reason for doing so, you'll be fined straight away. So you really- there's nothing open here anyway. There's no pubs or bars or like my hair's getting a little bit longer than I'm comfortable with at the moment. So there's no barbers or hairdressers or anything open. So yeah, I'm, I'm totally with you. Like in terms of like actually having the time and headspace, I suppose, to do deep work, then I do need, you know, those periods of kind of intense isolation, Sometimes like you know I'll, I'll get up, might start working and writing at like half eight nine, and I won't stop writing until like one or two or something like that. So those days where I have those are really great. It can be really intense. Yeah. And because I'm working from home, most days I'll take like a two or three hour lunch break. You know, go running and properly like decompress and do a few hours in the morning. One of the things that I I did find from my previous agency is that we had a huge open office and it was two floors and I was on the top floor and you could hear everything going on as well.
0: Oh my from gosh.
1: Not just your floor, but the floor underneath. And we had this hidden roof that, you know, and there was 50, 60 of us in here. And th- that was just the worst thing for me. I had to sit there all day looking really kind of grumpy and and, <laughs> yeah. and like unsociable because I had to wear my, my headphones and stuff like that just so I could get some work done. So I think a nice balance for me is doing stuff with the podcast on a personal level. Like I started it for quite a selfish reason in terms of, I knew I was moving back to the UK to be in a small village. I very much didn't want to become a hermit. And I thought like there was a serious risk of that. So it gets me out of my shell and talking to people. So that's awesome. That's the reason I do
0: it. That's really cool. That's really cool. We'll make sure I'll link to that. We'll link to your personal website, link to your Twitter too, and your LinkedIn. Nelson, it's been awesome. It's so good to chat. It's great to meet you. I'm so excited you signed up for SuperPath Pro too. So we'll see you in office hours and one-on-ones and all that good stuff also. And maybe we should check in again in a couple months and, and see how things are going.
1: Sounds great.